2: Introducing Classic Showbiz with Cliff Nesteroff. That's me, Cliff Nesteroff. This show is about the history of comedy. These are the stories that have fallen through the cracks, which you may not have heard before. Comedians and LSD, did you know that dropping acid is the whole reason we have George Carlin and Richard Pryor? Did you know that once upon a time there was a separate circuit for black people and white people? Comedians did not coexist. They had completely different rooms. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things like that. The gay experience, the black experience, the drug-addled, psychedelic experience, all of that on Classic Showbiz with Cliff Nesteroff. We're going to share chapter one of the four-part series here on Earwolf Presents, and you can listen to all four chapters right now, only on Stitcher Premium. For more info, go to stitcherpremium.com showbiz.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Cliff Nesteroff. And his orchestra. It was just a nightclub, you know, very nice nightclub, and uh, was run by the mob. You would see people come in and out, and mind your business. You know what I mean? You know what I mean.
4: And they dragged Lou outside and beat the shit out of him. And I try to intervene, and Jack didn't try to push me back in the club. Stay out of it. They beat him up and threw him in the gutter. Here's today's special.
2: I swear to God, there's nothing I get asked more than why somebody my age, and I was born in 1980, why somebody my age became immersed in the details of comedy's past. People ask me, how does a kid barely old enough to remember Steve Urkel rattle off the most arcane details about Las Vegas comedians like Toady Fields and Shecky Green? Well, first of all, I'm crazy. But leaving that aside for a moment, I'm also the author of The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, Cliff Nesteroff. This is the Classic Showbiz Podcast, where we explore obscure stories from the history of comedy. We have the help of some interesting voices from comedy's past, people like Shecky Green, Jack Carter, Lord Buckley's daughter, Carl Gottlieb, Whoopi Goldberg, people that were there and know the stories firsthand. My humble hardcover is the result of two things that I loved when I was a teenager. Shopping at thrift stores and experimenting with LSD. I dug all things vintage, whether it be fashion, architecture, music, design, and I scoured the record sections of the goodwill for LPs, rhythm and blues, girl groups, psychedelic rock, anything with an interesting cover. And it was in those awful-smelling thrift stores flipping through the LPs that I discovered the genre of mid-century comedy records. LSD left my teenage brain with the perspective of someone who lived in the era of Miami Beach Supper Clubs. It's also a handy shorthand answer when people ask me, how does a young guy like you get to know about stuff like this? I can simply respond, I did a lot of acid. Each chapter of Classic Showbiz will explore a different comedian or a different moment in the history of comedy and Today, we're gonna talk about the mob and the power it held over comedians and their careers. During the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, every American city had a major nightclub, if not several, that employed stand-up comics. Nine times out of 10, those clubs were run by the mob. You could have a substantial stand-up career thanks to their support. And this was especially clear in the story of a boxer-turned-taxi-driver-turned-comedian named Alan Drake. He wasn't particularly talented, but Drake's mob connections provided him with an impressive comedy career. But eventually that career collapsed when Alan Drake's sordid mob connection turned the old stand-up metaphor of killing and dying into a morbid reality.
3: that the questions you're asking and the people you're asking about due to the fact that you must have seen something or heard something about them for you to ask me. Now, you're you're compiling what I'm telling you. I know you're compiling someone else's with my thoughts and the thoughts they gave you through them, too.
2: Before I tell you about the comedian Alan Drake, let's take a look at exactly how and why the mob became so powerful in the world of nightclubs and stand-up. During 1920s Prohibition, organized crime illegally distributed booze. You probably know this already, but bootlegging, rum running, speakeasy operations, all of it created a vast and profitable empire. And when Prohibition was repealed in 1933, well, the mob remained powerful, but their profits were threatened. Stuck with useless speakeasies, they salvaged their investments by turning them into nightclubs. And with liquor legally available, something else was needed to lure in patrons. And that something was grand-scale live entertainment. Comedian Jackie Curtis.
3: Those were great days. They had uh, gold-plated nameplates on your dressing room door. Every night, there was a new, uncapped bottle in your room, in your dressing room. If you took one drink out of it that was taken away and a new bottle was put, they were really first-class.
2: The explosion of mob-run nightclubs created a circuit of well-paying jobs for singers, dancers, acrobats, and comics. Bouncers that had stood at speakeasy doors were now supper club frontmen. The mob-ran clubs from Chicago to New York, Philadelphia to Baltimore. A mob-run nightclub could be utterly glamorous or a total dive. Elderly comedian Dick Curtis.
3: I worked at a strip joint in Baltimore called Eddie Leonard's Spa. It was nine to two in the morning, three strippers, a trio, and me, and that was the show. And I opened at Eddie Leonard's Spa in Baltimore Christmas Eve in 1952. Can you imagine who would go to a strip joint in 1952 at Christmas Eve? But I'm in a tuxedo because everybody then, in those days, we all wore tuxedos. So I walked out to these three guys in overalls sitting down in the front row. And I said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dick Curtis. The guy said, get off, you faggot.
2: According to Curtis, the phrase stand-up comic came from the mob itself.
3: The outfit used to call guys who stood up and told jokes, you know, straight out jokes, bam, bam, bam. They called him a stand up guy. That's where the stand up thing came from.
2: In the post Prohibition era, the two most notorious mob leaders were Vito Genovese and Frank Costello. Genovese oversaw one of America's most powerful mob families, but he fled the country when federal agents charged him with murder. His underling, Frank Costello, became the new boss in his place. Costello controlled the crime family for the next 20 years and maintained a network of nightclubs where comics would perform. Comedian Bobby Ramsen. In
3: 1945, when World War II was over, America had a party, and the party lasted until 1955. Every other door in every small town in America was a nightclub. We had won the war, money was no object, people were going out every night, comics were working and everybody had a job in show business because people were out there and Miami was building a new hotel every year.
2: In 1953, there were four active hotels in Las Vegas that booked comedians. In Miami Beach, at the exact same time, there were nearly 300. There was endless amount of work available down there, if you were a stand-up.
4: Early Miami was marvelous, and then all the hotels started
2: having shows. Comedian Jack Carter.
4: And they played people like four on one bill. They played giant names. It was big, big big-time showbiz and big gambling.
2: Comedy writer Saul Weinstein wrote for the comedian Alan Drake.
3: I met Alan Drake. His real name was Alan and One thing led to another. After a while, I was writing you know, occasional jokes for him. He occasionally had a sort of a feeling of awe when it came to speaking about... Uh, mobsters are very awesome to, to people, you know. There they are. They exist in a world of their own. They don't have to follow rules. They do what they want. They can do terrible things. <laughs> I'm a pretty straight individual. Uh, some of the people I work for uh, had some shadiness in their in their behaviors. So uh, if by osmosis that makes me a member of the mafia, perhaps I am.
0: You'll be well informed.
4: You know what they did with you if they didn't like you? Out to the desert, and they tied you down, and, and put honey on your body, and let them and let the the ants eat you to death, you know.
2: Alan Drake drove his taxi around Miami Beach, picking up comedians, dropping off hookers, chauffeuring drunk tourists, and taking occasional mobsters from A to B. He chatted up each and every one of them, engaging them with stories about his past, and some of those stories made them laugh, and others gave them pause. Drake told them about his upbringing in a Skid Row neighborhood of Boston, how as a 12-year-old he got into street fights with violent anti-Semites, and how those scuffles taught him he was good with his fists. He also learned he could disarm an adversary if he could make them laugh. Alan Drake entered the ring as a teenager and had 20 lightweight bouts. He had a good number of wins, but the boxer's life gave him a crisis of conscience. He had been a victim of violence his whole life, so now the thought of hurting others kinda made him sick. But as a street tough, he wasn't sure how else to survive. You know, When he turned away from boxing, he became a petty thief, and at one point he was chased by police after breaking into a truck. Bullets were fired as Drake ran for his life. He escaped, but with the police on his trail, he figured it was best that he flee Massachusetts altogether. Drake and his bent nose fled to a warm climate, and he took a gig that required little education. He started driving a taxi in Miami Beach. Mob boss Frank Costello had surrogate gangsters who did his bidding around the country. In Miami Beach, his surrogate was a tough guy known as Little Augie. Little Augie hopped into Alan Drake's taxi one night, and as they chatted, Little Augie realized two things. One, that he'd actually seen Drake box a year earlier, and he liked the way he fought. And two, he thought Drake was a pretty funny storyteller. Little Augie mentioned he controlled a number of Miami Beach night spots, and he was always looking for a solid MC. He encouraged Alan Drake to give stand-up comedy a shot in a strip joint he ran called... The Paddock Club.
3: The Paddock Club, I'll tell you something interesting about that place.
2: Lou Alexander played the Paddock Club in a comedy team with Howard Storm. They were billed as the Miami Beach answer to Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis.
3: That was one of the better places that, that Howard and I were, because we remember we were only 19, 20 years old when we were playing these places. We were the youngest comedy team in, in show business. I mean, we, we started probably at 18, and we were working strip joints and working, like, you know, because we didn't start at the top. We worked only all the toilets. But when we got to Miami Beach, and we worked into the Paddy Club, we were a very big hit there because guys used to come in and see us. It was on 7th and Broadway or 7th and Collins or something. And it was the number one strip club in Miami Beach. And it was one of the classiest strip clubs at Miami Beach. That, that's one place I think I'll never forget.
2: Alan Drake bought a joke book memorized some routines, and got on stage at the paddock club. He told jokes and introduced strippers with names like Cookie Cooper and Dusty DeLure. Drake was grateful for Little Augie's encouragement, even though there were ominous implications. Drake had grown up around tough guys, and he chauffeured all types in his taxi. When the mob element was present, it was unspoken yet obvious. The mob had a vibe, and you knew when they were around. Alan Drake knew little Augie was a mobster, but it was also just the social norm of working in a strip club, a tavern, a supper club, or a saloon. It was neither shocking nor unusual, but that did not make it any less dangerous. A comedian in those days was a tactician, a draftsman. You memorized a joke book the same way you learned a trade. You mastered the technique, and then you applied it to your career. Alan Drake's jokes had no bearing in reality. They were generic. He would joke about his mother-in-law, even though he wasn't even married. Club owner Maynard Sloat.
3: Alan was a competent comedian. He wasn't a brilliant comic. He was just an adequate comic. And uh, he got along well with everybody.
2: I guess. Drake graduated to the Eastern Circuit. It wasn't talent or originality that got him there, but the power of little Augie and his important Frank Costello connections. Drake played the Three Rivers Inn in Syracuse, the Holiday House in Pittsburgh, and the Primrose in Newport, Kentucky. And at every stop, he was simply reciting jokes written by others, public domain, gags for any occasion. During his tour, he was hired to MC a beauty pageant in New Jersey. This was a standard gig for a generic comedian of Drake's generation. It's what comics in those days called a club date. If you were on the road and had to do a gig that was one night only, that was a club date. And they generally paid a tremendous amount of money because the gig was usually a thankless job, playing to a drunken Shriners convention or any old group that could not be less interested in your jokes. Alan Drake's job was to warm up the beauty pageant audience, to kill time as the girls changed their costumes, and to keep the pace going during a long, long show. And throughout it all, to keep himself entertained, he flirted with the ladies. That night, Drake awarded the title of Miss New Jersey Legs to a young blonde woman named Janice Hansen. Janice liked Drake's confidence, and she liked his swagger. She was young, but she'd already dated many notable men who'd swung through town, and she made herself available to the MC. Within days, Drake proposed marriage. Jack Carter.
4: Beautiful girl, beautiful
2: Bond showgirl. Drake introduced little Augie to his new bride. Little Augie couldn't believe it. She was the hottest woman he'd ever seen, and he was jealous. Little Augie wondered why she was with this bum when it was he who had the connections, the money, and the power. And so his Machiavellian gears started to move. Little Augie had a plan, and that plan would eventually, inadvertently, destroy Alan Drake's life and his career.
3: Radio keeps you in the know. Any questions? I answer
4: them. The Tony Martin Show, brought to you by Bobby, the pin curl permanent perfect for today's New,
2: softly, feminine hairstyles. And here he is, Tony Martin. In the early 1950s, there was a singer named Tony Martin, and he was just about the biggest thing in show business. The crooner had hit singles, his own CBS radio program, and a 15-minute TV show. He also starred in a string of major MGM movies and played the biggest nightclubs in the country.
4: Here in this enchanted place
2: Tony Martin headlined the top mob-run rooms in Las Vegas and New York. He could fill the seats, and he could keep his mouth shut. Take
4: my hand, I'm a stranger in paradise
2: Little Augie told Alan Drake that his stand-up was now strong enough for the big time. But few who had ever seen Alan Drake's act would ever agree with that assessment but you know what, it didn't matter because little Augie had the connections and he had the power. That's all a comedian needed, really, in order to make it back then. Little Augie gave Alan Drake some tremendous news. He was gonna send him on a tour as Tony Martin's opening act. It was all part of little Augie's grand scheme. Little Augie could now focus on Mrs. Drake and seduce the young beauty with his impressive lifestyle
4: when we are dancing and you're dangerously near me i get ideas
3: i get ideas
2: alan drake was playing enormous rooms he opened for tony martin at the flamingo in vegas and then from there they went to new york where they played the most important nightclub in america the copacabana the Copa Cabana opened its doors in November 1940, and for decades it was the domain of Jules Padell, the former speakeasy bouncer that acted as a Frank Costello front. Comedian Jack Carter played the Copa. He remembers Jules Padell.
4: Everybody thought he was an Italian in a hood. He was a, <laughs> a nice Jewish man, but he was tough. He had all the busboys and the help lined up in the kitchen like like an army, you know. He walked up and down like Mussolini. That bar was loaded with gangsters, you know? Uh, You had to be a member to know that. That in those booths was sitting Costello, three-fingered Mike, uh, Jimmy Blue Eyes, you know?
2: Comedian Shecky Green is more to the point.
3: The man was a cocksucker.
2: While Alan Drake was playing Frank Costello's Copacabana... Behind the scenes, Costello's leadership was under threat. His former associate, Vito Genovese, had been extradited back to America to stand trial for murder. He was acquitted of all charges, and now Vito Genovese was ready to assume his old position as head of the family. But Frank Costello had been in charge for years and wasn't really ready to relinquish that mantle. And so a feud flared up members of the outfit were forced to choose between Frank Costello and Vito Genovese. Little Augie had been vocalizing his support for Frank Costello for years and years, and now a battle ensued. And when bullets literally grazed Frank Costello's scalp one day, he heeded the warning and stepped down. But no Frank Costello meant no little Augie, and no little Augie meant no Alan Drake. Meanwhile, Alan Drake's next stop was a gig at a place called the Lotus Club in Washington, D.C. Little Augie continued to sleep with Drake's wife, and shortly after the assassination attempt on Frank Costello, Little Augie took her on a brazen date in Manhattan to the venue where Alan Drake had just performed, the Copa Cabana. Comedian Jack Carter says his dancer friend Lou Spencer confronted Janice Drake about cheating on Alan when he spotted them at the Copa.
4: And my friend Lou Spencer, the Dunhills, walked into the Cobra once and saw her sitting with them and, and he said, uh, what the hell are you doing with him? You're married, you know, you know? you know." And they dragged Lou outside and beat the shit out of him. And I tried to intervene and Jack and try to push me back in the club, stay out of it. They beat him up and threw him in the gutter.
2: Little Augie and Janice Drake left the Copacabana for a nearby cocktail lounge. They were seated only five minutes when a waiter summoned Little Augie to a telephone call. When Augie got off the phone, he informed Janice they'd have to leave on urgent business. The couple returned to Little Augie's black sedan, and once seated, they felt a pair of revolvers pressed against the back of their heads. The gunman told Little Augie to drive Saul Weinstein.
3: I don't know if he ever suspected that his his beautiful uh, beauty contest woman would having an affair with little Augie. What was she doing to him so late at night and wherever they were?
2: The gunman had little Augie drive to an industrial area near LaGuardia Airport. They parked. Moments later, a bullet smashed through the back of Augie's skull and another through his left cheek. Janice Drake got a bullet in the back of her neck. The revolvers were discarded and the hitmen vanished into the night. During the subsequent investigation, police suspected Janice Drake of being a mafia decoy. Police revealed that long before her marriage to Drake, she had been questioned in connection with the slaying of a playboy dress manufacturer, having gone on a date with that man the night before he was murdered. Turns out that Janice had also dated the famed mobster Albert Anastasia the night before he was murdered. The FBI told reporters Mrs. Drake was far from being an innocent bystander, and the Associated Press said she was considered an important cog in some phases of mob operations. Drake's bookings dried up. Without the support of the mob behind him, Drake had to find additional means of support. Saul Weinstein.
3: I did understand at one time that he was selling cocaine toward the end of his career. And uh, by then, I cut my uh, relationship with him. And uh, and through a lot of things that he did, a lot of scary, uh, immoral things, I was glad I I did so.
2: While Alan Drake knew of Little Augie's mob connections, he seemed blissfully ignorant of his wife's affair. If he did know about it, he was certainly too afraid to complain. But in doing so, he saw not only the loss of his wife and his benefactor but his career as well. There's a reason that even the most fervent comedy fans have never heard the name Alan Drake.
4: Drake donated his wife to this hood. They killed the hood and her. I'm one of the few guys who went to his funeral, there, but nobody showed up.
2: This chapter of Classic Showbiz was produced by Kip Ryan Smith, with production and sound engineering by Tony Gannon, with additional support from Kirsten Jesowitz Heidel. Our executive producers are Mark Marin, Brendan McDonald, and Jenny Radley. Classic Showbiz with Cliff Nesteroff is a Stitcher original and a production of Midroll Media. Go to stitcherpremium.com/showbiz to listen to all four chapters today.
1: This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos
0: Santos.
1: This is Riza Lisea.
0: And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aqui Presents.
1: We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us
0: every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿Qué es lo que?